I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Sizing Up the Value of Big Data on the Farm, evaluates the evolution of precision data management tools and some of the hurdles and economic gains associated with the technology. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it added. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Whether it's at a conference booth, a nearby dealership, or even the local coffee shop, talk about farm data is everywhere. But when there's talk of farm data, it's usually about the many collection methods, type of collection equipment, valuable uses for and safety of that data. Little is said about making sure the data being vacuumed up from fields all over the country is accurate. The precision farming equipment responsible for pulling planting, yield, input application, and many other types of farm data are highly advanced, but they aren't infallible. To get the biggest benefit out of farm data, it must be as precise as possible. But to ensure that level of quality, farmers have to configure, calibrate, and validate it in the field. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Jeremy Wilson, no-till farmer and technology specialist with Crop IMS in Effingham, Illinois, shares his experience as both a service provider and farmer, crunching the numbers to make farm data a decision-making precision tool. I'm from Effingham, Illinois. Don't know where that's at that's a real easy place to get to you jump on interstate 70 and go two hours straight east and that's where i'm located up until about last september i always made the comment i live i come from the land of dirt not soil okay so i'm not from central illinois that's got deep dark black top soils it's about this deep but after being in washington dc and meeting zippy duvall president of american farm bureau he's changed my term i'm from the land of man dirt not boy dirt so bear that in mind, the, 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 the soil that I'm talking about and what we're, what we're farming is, is very challenging. Um, a lot of clay contents, and I'll go into that as well, but I, I always set that preference right off the bat because when I speak in other states and they say you're from Illinois, everyone thinks that your soil is the color of this tablecloth and, and whatever you do, you're going to grow 150 bushel corn. That's not what we're talking about. But I'm going to talk about how um, using precision ag data to, as, as an asset for your no-till operation. I'm going to talk about each different aspect of this throughout this next presentation. And, and I'll be honest, I, I, we have all that equipment as well, and I don't think I have a slide that lays it out. But one thing you've got to understand about my father, first and foremost, he's 65 years old, will turn 66 here in about a month. His understanding of computers is about as much as that he believes every morning from about 5.45 a.m. till 8.15 a.m. he can find the end of the internet. Okay? He knows how to check his email, and that's the extent of it. 
But dad is the kind of guy now that every vehicle, every piece of equipment, that if, if you are a crop consultant or a scout and you walk on our farm, you've got a device that you log what you see and, and even use that for recommendations. If a tractor pulls into the field, whether we're using a piece of vertical tillage or whether we're spraying or planting, that tractor's got a field computer in it as well and we log it. And all that data is very accurate and, and calibrated and I'll get into those points. We have to build a history over time. You know, we've been logging data and collecting data since 2001. Uh, I, I can still, I'll never forget. And then after you understand this, we put our first yield monitor in on my dad's farm. Now I've been installing yield monitors since 1997. We put our first one on on September the 11th, 2001. Does anybody remember that date? We went into the shed about 6 o'clock that morning and started putting in yield monitors. And I was explaining to Dad all the wonderful things that we were going to do and how we were going to move the farm to the next level. And the world was blowing up around us and we didn't even have a clue. I got home to my wife and I walked in the house and she's like, oh, do you have a good day today? It's like, no. I'm like, why? What I miss? <laughs> and she went on to explain. But that was the foundation that, that, you know, we were always logging little bits and pieces of information, but we didn't have that yield data we needed until 2001 to get to where we're at today. Gives us the necessary information for analytics and reporting. Analytics is a big deal, and so too is reporting. Um, you know, on, we all know if you're involved in the farm, you have to report to a crop insurance agent. You got to report to the FSA. If you've got situations where you've got manure management plans or other things like that, you've got animals on, you know, that you have to manage that, there's all kinds of reporting that revolves around that. And that just gives us another, another tool to facilitate that process. This is the big one, and, and probably why we do it as much as anything is we verify the results of agronomic changes we make on the farm. We don't make tons of changes, but we look at a lot of different things. I'm really fortunate in the fact that that my job allows me now that basically when you guys go to the field, my job, my work stops. So I get to go back to the farm. And, I, and I'm happy to say I've got a 1,200-acre research farm that I look at a lot of different things. And, and do we make wholesale changes ever? Absolutely not. We did make a couple, and, and I can talk about them later. But the big thing that it allows us to understand, you know, hybrid and variety selection, that's easy. You know, we look at that at a lot of different levels, and I'll talk examples about that. But just different things in, in, in different types of vertical tillage we've looked at, and we've looked at some, we've done a little bit of tile work, and I'll talk about that. We're going to get into some more, probably some more tile work yet this spring or maybe even next fall. But we have to have a way to document these agronomic changes. It may be something as simple as, as a different post-applied product. You know, I didn't, I don't think, I know I don't have a slide, but, you know, we're a Liberty Link soybean guy, okay? And, you know, we've done some trials again. You know, we went back and looked at it. You know, we're, we, we found some ways in doing some pre's that we can get some pretty good control in Roundup Ready soybeans. So in this past year, we put out a few more Roundup Ready soybeans just to understand if our decision to, to choose a Liberty Link soybean for weed control was the right, right decision. Happy to say, yes, that answer come back. That's still a fine decision. It wasn't a wrong decision. And so we have to be able to document that. And you have to have accurate data to be able to do it. I believe at the end of the day, and you guys can all laugh at me, this isn't the time that I've warned everyone you're going to throw me out of, the, out of, the, out of the, the presentation, but I deep down believe that one day the potential value of my land is going to be higher because I have documented results of the productivity of that land. I, I think it's inevitable. And, and no, we're not there today, but, and, and I don't subscribe to all the freemium services that's out there, but 
if you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter, you, you see all the database management tools that are offering you that's going to tell you the value of your land, you know, and, and build in a forecast of what they think that's worth. You know what? That's fine. I'm building it already. I don't need someone to guess for me. I can already tell you. I've got 10, and a, 10 to 12 rock-solid years of data that I can document to any person that wants to purchase the land that I've got for sale what that productivity is. I don't have to make a guess. I've got it documented. We have to identify that limiting factor to yield. What is it? Could it be, you know, could be fertility. I've got some perfect examples that I'm 100% certain. My limiting factor to yield in that field is fertility. I got an example I'm going to show you today. It specifically was hybrid. I made a wrong hybrid decision this spring. No ifs, no ands, or buts. That was my limiting factor. Could be other factors. And I'm going to talk about that here towards the end because I, I've got a couple fields that I've looked at after, after researching the data and really running a lot of analytics on it. I think I'm rock solid on my crop nutrition or my fertility. I was rock solid in my hybrid and variety selection. My weather wasn't real favorable to me, but I can't control that. But I found another limiting factor that we look to address. Calibration is so important if you're going to make data-driven decisions to be accurate. I have no way of guessing that someone sitting behind the seat of my tractor with that field computer didn't take the time he needed to calibrate that thing correctly. I can just look at the data at the end of, the, at the end of that process and I'm going to use that to make decisions that must be accurate. Uncalibrated data might as well be left on the field. I normally preach if you're not collecting yield data, and I don't have to say it now, but if you're not collecting calibrated yield data, you've just left the most valuable resource land on that field that we never have a chance to pick back up. You don't get a chance to go back and recreate it. Uncalibrated data, yes, in the case of yield, we can kind of, sort of, back into it, but you cannot completely recreate it. The same holds true with capture and variability. I'm not a guy. I don't care if my yield monitor says I had 314 bushels in my hopper when I went and dumped it, and I went and waited, and I got 315. I want to capture variability. And in some cases, some crops, the two go hand in hand. But I work really hard, especially in yield and capture and variability, because I need to find variations out in that field that I may need to address. And as you'll see at the end, I, I talk about how that plays into that. I probably should have put this in all caps, but all operators must understand the importance of calibration. So now maybe none of you have hired, hired hands that work for you, or maybe, maybe, you're not a, maybe you don't have a parent that, that's working for you. And I tell the story of Bob, and I can't disclose Bob's full name because I got someone in, in the crowd that'll know Bob. But Bob's my poster child of that person that you have to really train and understand how to calibrate data. Bob's that guy that knows how to climb in the seat, he knows how to put it in gear, he knows how to put that piece of equipment and gauge it, whatever it may be. But it's clueless on the value of the data that we're going to capture, and it's clueless the importance of calibrating it. So it's important that all people within your operation understand what you're doing with this information that they're collecting, and that they have as much commitment to that as what they do to that drive wheel on your planner or your hydraulic drive on your planner. It's just as important. So when should you calibrate? If I'm going to tell you it's the underutilized tool, we, I, I got to talk about when you do it. Without a doubt, we calibrate every start of every season. I know that we may have calibrated last spring or last fall, and we think it's right, but that doesn't matter to me. I double-check all that. Yes, I'm that guy standing behind the planter when it really probably should be running with my pocket knife digging up the trench to make sure that I'm really dropping 31,000 seeds. 
or 33,000 seeds, whatever the case may be. And I want to document that because I'm going to run analytics to look at how hybrids responded to different populations. We're not doing a ton of work in variable rate seeding yet today because I can't convince my father to buy me a twin hybrid planter. There's one or two of them on the market today, and the first time I can convince him to buy me a two hybrid planter, I'm going to run variable rate seeding on every single field, and I can show you the maps on how I'm going to drive it and set those populations. Because today I can't find a corn hybrid that is, that is built to handle an 18 to 24,000 population at the same time I want to push it to a 36 to 38. And I have to have two different seeds if I'm going to pull that off. But I still look at how hybrids responded to a smaller range in populations that may be something like a 28 to 34,000. Have I learned a lot from that? Maybe not a lot, but I have understood that I have a hybrid or two in my lineup that if I'm going to error in a population, I want to error at 32,000, not 34, 36,000. So those are all very important. We also ask for everyone that sits behind the seat of our equipment, if you see something out of the ordinary, call us. And what's out of the ordinary? That's wide open. You know, in the case of planning, you know, if you see a swing of 3,000 on that planter, give me a call. If, you're not, if you don't know how to do it or don't know what it takes to make sure you got it right, pick up the phone and give us a call because I'm going to use that somewhere down the line. Extreme changes in crop or planting conditions. This is probably um, the change in crop um, conditions it probably relates a little bit more to yield than what it does in planting or other applications. But if we see any dramatic changes, let's double check it. And clearly, when you change crops, redo a calibration. I know that that's all common sense stuff, but I'll tell you as I work with crop IMS as growers that have data and we begin to process that, it just blows my mind how many times we have the most beautiful corn data you have ever seen in a million years and we get to soybeans and it's the biggest pile of junk you've ever seen. And it's just from the fact that, well, we calibrated it for corn. What's the matter? I'm just planting soybeans. It makes a big difference. And so being able to document that's important. Residue changes, I do throw that one out there. And that really only comes in if you're using some of the systems that you might be collecting, like downforce and, and some of the other things. Um, I've not seen huge changes in, in needing to do a lot of recalibration as it relates to residue, but there are enough examples that I do throw it out there. Long and short, you can forget everything else that I talk about today. I just want you to understand, I believe data that we collect through precision and guiding that in our decisions in your farming operation is more than a binder filler. So let's talk about how I use data and why it's not a binder filler for me. So this is just kind of a, I'm going to just give you an overview so you understand as I talk about how we're using technology and the importance of calibration. So we grid soil sample every four years. Yield data is used for upcoming fertilizer applications in every case. Um, the one anomaly to that would be wheat. I didn't, talk what I, I didn't tell what I plant, but I'm in a corn, soybeans, and recreational wheat rotation. And we have recreational wheat to grow straw for our recreational cattle. So in the case of wheat, we don't necessarily always use yield in those. Um, we occasionally, if we have an extremely good wheat year, we might go throw some potash out there uh, ahead of some double crop soybeans if we had a really good soybean yield prior to the wheat being planted. All of our, majority of our wheat goes on um, soybean stubble um, and then back to double crops. 
not very many acres. We're talking maybe 100, 125 a year. We use advanced planter monitoring data for reporting and analytics. We do a lot of work in, in elevation uh, for water, uh, the elevation layer for water management, pulling that primarily from planting data or harvest data. Planting data is a little better because the harvest data we have the issue with the weight, you know, gaining on the hopper and tires squishing and such like. All of our crop protection applications are, are recorded for reporting purposes. God forbid we ever get the call to get an audit of our chemical records. By golly, we got it, and hope that day never comes. If tillage is needed, which we do very little, um, we, set, we, use, we log all of that for analytics. Uh, we do run some vertical tillage. You know, we've had some issues with ruts that we've had to fix, and I've got some, I didn't incorporate it in here, but I got some really interesting data where we had to disk some ruts from, shut from a sprayer application, believe it or not. We had a wet spring trying to cover some Liberty Link soybeans and left some ridiculous ruts we had to fix. It's amazing some of the results that show in that data. We track all of our cover, cover crop plantings for analytics as well. Uh, probably two-thirds to three-quarters of all of our um, farms get cover crops. There's a lot of different combinations. We use that for analytics. Last but not least, all scouting data uh, is collected to develop application recommendations. Primarily, the only scouting that, the only time that this really applies is normally cutworms. It seems like it, it's not really a question if we're going to have to deal with cutworms, it's how many. Um, normally, the instances are small enough that we can't justify an insecticide across every acre just to eliminate it from the start. I mean, it's always a smaller use case we have to deal with but we'll use these scoutings to drive applications of insecticide and then, God forbid, occasionally replants as well to touch up what we've lost. What we've lost. We'll get back to Jeremy's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. I also wanted to remind you about a new series featured monthly on our podcast, Tech Tips with Dr. Ray Acevedo where the former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture shares insights and advice on some of the latest precision tools and how to best implement them on your strip-till operation. You can listen to past technology tips and also find accompanying articles at striptillfarmer.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jeremy Wilson, who discusses how to accurately analyze planting data to make informed seeding decisions. So let's talk about the value of planting data. This is all 2016. I told a couple people I scrambled and got everything updated from this year's worth of this year's data. Uh, this is just one field I pulled out to run some analytics on to show you. I ripped all the hybrid and variety information out there. But why it's important to capture this, this is an example. My dad does very rarely does split planter. Why he did it this day, I'll never know. But we sure learned a lot, and I thanked him for it when it was done. Uh, because as you can see, we're pretty well 50-50 there on that field of what we planted of hybrid one and hybrid two. So now we go back. Now let's break down and let's look at the yield of that. Here's where the real difference come in. So we've calibrated that yield data. Hybrid one, average yield was 135.46 with a moisture of, I believe, the average was 13.8 when we harvested it. Hybrid two was 156.93 with an average moisture of 14.58. So what's that tell you? Yeah, hybrid one really sucked. And the worst problem was, is we had way many too many bags of that this spring. 
So, <clears throat> the other thing that I didn't put in here, but we did go analyze that across the different soil types within that field to see if there was any chance that maybe hybrid one just got misplaced. The reason I didn't put the slide up, because it looked just as bad. So, no matter what we did, no matter what soil type, this is, I actually had three different fields that I run this analysis on. This was actually the middle of the road, and that's why I included it here. It was about a 20, what, 21 bushel difference. And actually, this hybrid was sold us, to us as being the next up-and-coming rock star, and we needed to have it all, we had to have it across enough, <laughs> and Mark knows exactly what number that was. Hybrid number one was the up-and-coming rock star. And so why we split planted it is, is because we want, number two was the rock star off of our farm for the last two years. And we wanted to get it across multiple soil types so that we properly positioned that hybrid because we anticipated for this, like right now we would have ordered probably a third of the farm of this number, maybe 25% of the farm. And we wanted to make sure over every soil type how that performed compared to what was our best hybrid before. So no, we didn't see it coming. We actually thought hybrid one and hybrid two would be flipped and we thought we would see a 20 bushel yield difference in the new Rockstar. But in every example I've got of this hybrid, like I said, in four different fields, this is the middle of the road. I got one particular soil type, the difference in yield was 48.2 bushel an acre difference. And I got a lot of that soil type. And so it real quickly said that's not the solution. Yes? So I do have the digitized survey that is publicly available that you can download anywhere that everyone says is a big old not good and, and not to use it. And so I, in about three of these fields of ours, I actually have run a Varus machine to try to begin to document some differences there and see if there's a close correlation between the two. In all of our research on these three fields, the digitized layer is close enough. I mean, it's not perfect, no but there's not enough variation out there to justify the cost of running a Varus machine across 1,200 acres. If you let me get to the very end of the presentation, I'll touch that topic again when I, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna get back to that, but that, in all this analysis I just talked about, we used the digitized survey because we determined it was close enough. Great question. That hybrid was on order prior to pulling into the field because the visual appearance said, you know what, this doesn't look like it's gonna yield as well, but everyone says this is gonna be it, so we better get our name on it in case we get into the harvest and the yield is better than what we thought. And after field number two, I sat in the combine in the, in the buddy seat beside my father's, he talked to a seed dealer and said, I don't care what hybrid you get me, cancel that that I've got, because it just didn't work for us. In areas it did, in our farm it didn't. You get a real, yeah, it was a very sick feeling. It wasn't a pleasant ride with my father that time. You have the ability to retire cow loads or retire calibrations in the hardware that I use. And so in the case, when I have a calibration that looks like it's kind of out of line and maybe not right, I'll normally go to my existing calibration and add one load to it and look at what the error is and make a decision. If, if I'm finding an error greater than, let's say, about 5%, 6%, I'll normally retire that entire calibration. I don't want to delete it because I still have yield data that could be associated to that in the field computer that that matters. And then I'll just retire it, do a new calibration, and move forward. When it comes to calibration, my corn calibration has always been pretty solid unless I had a huge swing in yield. The last couple years, I don't know if it's hybrid specific. I don't know what it is. 
but I think I've retired a calibration every year for the last three years. And prior to that, I had the same calibration I probably run for three or four years. So let's talk application data. So here's another field of my father's. This went to corn. And so I don't lay out all my whole nitrogens, my nitrogen application plan, but I'll give you like the, the Reader's Digest version. We start out every year with a plan of at least three applications of nitrogen somehow throughout the growing season. We do all spring applied DAP, so we're taking the nitrogen credit from our DAP. We do that on purpose. DAP has the cheapest nitrogen you're ever, ever going to buy. And by golly, I'm going to wait and put it on the spring, so I got a benefit to that. We most of the years, depending on, now if we get a, a dry, you know, maybe normal, whatever normal is anymore, planting season, we won't run a starter fertilizer, but in most years we run a starter fertilizer that carries another in-source in it. And then we are normally all pre-plant anhydrous ammonia. Uh, everything here is variable rate, um, and we just use the variable rate anhydrous ammonia in most cases to even out our variable rate DAP application. So that when that toolbar pulls out of the field, I've got an even rate of nitrogen across that entire field. So let's take another scenario. This is another research trial. And the only time I'll talk about products is right now, and bear with me, I don't pitch products, but if you look in this block here, you see these kind of different rates that show up. This is another anhydrous application. This is a trial where we run nitrogen stabilizers. So we run no nitrogen stabilizer, NSERV, and Nutrisphere N from Verdesian. But we're just going to understand. We made the switch from NSERV to Verdesian across the whole farm. First time in our life we made a whole farm switch. But I had worked on an NSERV pump for the last time I was ever going to work on an NSERV pump in my life. And I hate running NSERV through all my other control equipment. So we just, actually one year we didn't run any stabilizer whatsoever. But we went back and looked at it. And we'd done soil tests throughout the summer, you know, trying to monitor what was our available nitrogen throughout the year. Ironically, we had the perfect summer for not to do a nitrogen stabilizer study. We mineralized in throughout the year, available in, in the untreated as compared to the Verdesian, as compared to the NSERV, all exactly the same. With that being said, I threw all this analytics back in because we got another pretty wide application again of, of N rates. I know this one exactly, this average down here was 135. This top end average here was actually 177 because we did quite a bit of higher rate. Ironically, now we did step it up a little bit more because we flat rated DAP on this field and only put on 100 units of DAP. And so that's why you see this bar is a little higher because we didn't have as much nitrogen out there from that, that first DAP application. Ironically, this second bar, virtually no statistical difference again, but ironically that second middle range, which falls exactly in line with that 132 to 135, if you pull that extra nitrogen back out of it, ironically that come back to the same spot. And we did leave that nitrogen study in because soil tests showed us there was no reason to, to throw it out. So I hope I've illustrated some value of even logging things like in application. There's things that you can learn and value that can be drawn out of that. We also have went and tied all this back to our planning data, and I knew I was going to be close on time, so I didn't incorporate all that in there. But we've also looked at these in rates uh, and how those in rates affected different hybrids as well as soil types. So we've done a three-way analysis on that. Ironically, as you look at all that, we come back to this magical, like, well, when you include the N or the DAP into the process, you know, we're looking at give or take about 158 to 160 units of actual N was optimum for this past growing season. Now, you heard me say we've mineralized nitrogen better than we ever have. 
So am I going to do it all again next year? Absolutely. Because I think I had more available in this year than I've ever had. And so is that going to still be my optimum as I move into the next year? There was one hybrid on our farm that responded the best at the very highest end rate. And that hybrid's trait or was known as a racehorse-ish racehorse hybrid with a very fixed ear. And why that happened, I don't know. It, I wouldn't have expected that. I would have expected a more flexible ear style to maybe benefit from that. But So now I told you I was going to make a comment. And, and if you want to throw me out, I, I, I'll take it. I'm close enough to my end now. I think I can say it. So if you look at this, look at this map and you've got to see this field that lays over here, this is another 87 acres we farm right beside it. So we've done this same type of analytics across all of that. Nowhere in this mix did I see that I had a fertility issue. I know I've got a water issue, but I can manage the surface water better in it. I looked at hybrid. I looked at a lot of different things. And this field had been no-tilled since 1988. But we just made the decision this fall, we just pulled a ripper through that field. Because I took a soil petrometer, and I could not get that petrometer past 9 inches down. So I couldn't find another limiting factor. We'd run cover crops on it for a couple, three years. Everything I was showing had, I had another limiting factor besides yield. Now, what did I lose? We don't know yet. What was my yield doing on this field? Dropping quickly. So we had a combination, and this is all driven because of the spring conditions we had had. We had had to have been on that field when it was too wet the last two out of the last three years. So we knew we had compaction issues. We wasn't getting it broken up you know, through using cover crops and other things, and we just was getting no water movement through that field. Every time we got an inch of rain, this thing was covered with water. Am I going to fix it? I don't know. Did I make the wrong decision? I don't know. The only reason my dad agreed to do it, and the guy walked in that knows my dad, and he'll tell the story, I told him on it now, is he says, at the end of the day, for what I bought that thing for, I can get over two-thirds of it back in scrap. So if we made the wrong decision, we're out. And so we've coupled with the fact that this landowner has just come to us now and wants to tile it. So it's probably a good thing all in all. We're probably, likely this field may get tile. I don't think we'll get it in this spring. We'll probably have to do it next fall. But I think, and so I probably lost my, my benchmark to see here, you know, if, if I do have fields that I'm showing through a petrometer, I got compaction issues, do I need to reconsider taking a reset in this process that I've been in since 1988 to fix some underlying issues that I'm not fixing on the top. We tore it all up. Because <laughs> we, had, we had pulled a no-till ripper in 19, no, 2005. We pulled strips through about 10 different fields and saw really no benefit. We didn't see that we gained anything at all. I mean, we, we really didn't. And so we sat there and said, well, what are we going to do? You know, we looked at this once. And in, in, the, in 1,200 acres, we ripped about 22 acres in, in almost every field across every different soil type we had. And we really only found one soil type and one place we had a yield response. And he says, if we're going to throw the kitchen sink at something and try it, let's just tear it up. And, and to be honest with you guys, it was so compacted, we had to rip it twice. We could not get through it in a single pass. So even when we went back with the petrometer, we still had issues. That's the nature of that soil type. Mark, you farm some of that soil. You know what it's like. I mean, you, you get, everyone says you get one hour a day to farm, and that's when you're at lunch. This is different. You get three hours a day, and it takes you four hours to really get it done. So you can get part of it done when you're supposed to. And, and we don't know. It's just data told us we needed to look at something different and, and take a try.
So now I'll talk in the cloud system, because you have to be able to, to collect all this data and save it. How many people, you already, I already asked the question, you're on the USB stick, what's is it, your data storage solution looks something like this? So let's talk about options. You know, you've got the USB sticks, you've got personal computers, you've got cloud-based storage tools. And, and any of those will work. And, and I'm going to tell you for a minute, let's just take a look and talk about the cloud data storages. So what's the options out there? Ag Data Coalition, you probably haven't heard about that much. It's just now coming to life. If you're out of the state of Ohio, you might have heard about it. Ohio State's talking about it. You got AFS Connect, Agco Fuse Technology, you got Ag Leader Agfinity, you got Climate Pro, you got Digistar Harvest Tracker, you got My John Deere, you got Trimble Connected Farm, you got Raven Slingshot. Do I need to keep going on and on? There's tons of choices. And I'm not calling anyone out, and, and I just left dot, 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 because I know there's more coming, and I know that they're out there. So let's just talk about, if we're not going to pick one that's the answer, let's just talk about why we need it and what we should consider. So it just basically provides a mechanism to store agronomic data in a single location. It allows you the ability to catalog your farm data. And cataloging can be a big, important deal. You know, I've talked about all this analytics, and I wanted six years' worth of data, and I choose to pick a new software. You know what? If I'm going to try out a new software, I don't need to load 15 years worth of 1,200 acres worth of data into a system to know whether it works or not. More importantly, if one of these new cloud database solutions, whichever one you want to pick, thinks they're going to save the world because the answers they can bring, I don't want to give them my whole set of farm data. I'll just give them what they want. So let's just catalog them. These systems allow us to share data to their trusted service provider. I'm not going to lie. I work with an input crop supplier that does all my fertility recommendations. I have to get them all my yield data. I choose to give them my, most of my hybrid and variety data. It makes them mad. I don't plant their corn, but that's okay. Because if we're not making sure our seed and hybrid information is matching up with what we're doing in fertility, I can't win anyway as a farmer. And, and the trusted service providers can be more than input crop suppliers. Maybe it's a crop consultant. Maybe it's, you know, let, let your mind wonder there who it may be, but that data needs to be shared. So when we're going to do it, and you're going to dive into this, what do we need to think about? So define your goals of using a cloud-based storage solution first. Before I, you know, I went through the list of all of them out there, you yourself sat down and figured out what is your goals of the system. Does the system support your hardware solution? You know what, there's a couple of them out there that if you're one color or another is the most brilliant solution you'll ever find. But you throw one new piece of colored equipment in there, now that solution's broken. Last and not least, and I promise not to preach and I'll get off my soapbox now, but read and understand the terms of use and data privacy of these systems. They're not all created equal. And, and I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to call anyone out, but I can tell you, personally, Jeremy Wilson, Wilson Farms data is in none of them today because I've only really found one I kind of think might be okay, but I don't understand it well enough to know. I've got some cloud solutions that we use. I think they're very viable. I think they're great solutions, but a lot of them I just don't even want to touch. So emerging technologies that we're looking at to supplement what we're doing on our farm, and I think fits what you guys are doing in the no-till world really well, is I think we just got to really do a better job of evaluating this UAV and remote imagery tools. And I don't care whether you want to own your own UAV or you want to subscribe to one of the services. I think there's value that's going to be derived from this. I've talked about my nitrogen plan and going out in V8, V10. If I had my way, I'd own a UAV, and I would fly every field before I made that decision of whether I wanted to look at supplementing or spoon-feeding another nitrogen. Maybe even some pure color images. It doesn't all have to be the, you know, the NDVIs and the near-red edge imageries and all that. 
I think this is something we just got to be thinking about because I think it's a new tool. I also think about in our cover crop situations. I can tell you I was not walking fields as well as I should have this past spring. I mean, I knew I had some thin stands of cover crops and that, that some of the mixes that one variety or other had taken over. I could have done a better job of terminating some of them if I would have understood some stands back where I couldn't easily see or easily couldn't get to. Mobile applications to supplement data captured. I, I won't even start down that list. There's more apps now than I've probably got hair on my head. You know, there's just that many more coming, and I think we just, I think there's a few out there on the horizon that's going to allow us supplement this data and, and capturing some, another piece of information that it can drag into our analytics. Without a doubt, cloud-based analytics is where we're going. I, I hear again, I can't tell you which, I don't know which one's going to win. I don't know which one's the best answer yet today, but I think we need to be following that. So in summary, accurately collected data can help you make better agronomic decisions for the coming year. You likely own a lot of this technology I've already talked about today. Maybe not utilizing it quite in the way we are, but you already have it. And let data-driven decisions move your operation <clears throat> to the next level of profitability. And that's what it's all about for us. Yeah, do I drag home some stuff that Dad throws a fit about? Yeah. And if this isn't profitable, it doesn't stay, long and short. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for providing some context and consideration for data management tools on the market today, along with real-world examples from your farming operation. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. You can also keep up on the latest Strip-Till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Strip-Till, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on January 18th for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Jeremy Wilson, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>